Welcome to When Did You Know? I'm Ariel and this week I'm joined by Heather Patterson. Heather is a queer woman who's worked in LGBT plus and broader equality campaigns and projects for over 20 years and is currently the chief executive of Sheffield LGBT plus youth charity Say It. Say It is an incredible LGBT plus young people and sexual health and HIV charity based in Sheffield UK which was established in 1999 and their vision is to create an environment that supports the sexual and emotional well-being of young people and empowers LGBT plus young people and those affected by HIV to transform their own lives. So thank you for joining me Heather and welcome. Thank you. Um, it's lovely to be invited. Thank you very much. So um, each episode starts with the same three questions. And to begin with, how do you identify? Uh, so I identify as a queer woman. Um, I've used different labels over the years. Um, when I was younger, I came out as bi and then gay. And then, and I was like, you know what? Like, I'm somewhere in that bubble and I don't really need the, to sort of identify where I'm sticking my pin in on that spectrum and I just prefer the term queer for me I know some people have quite strong feelings either for or against the term um, but for me it means that personally I don't have to give you that level of detail and then it also feels more connected to a wider community of like you know of a, a broader spectrum of queer people rather than this one little section of the community um, so yeah Thank that's God. a really <laughs> nice that's a really nice way of putting it actually I did, I did an interview this morning actually and, and we were talking about the word queer and for me it's something that I'm still I don't mind when other people use it for for some reason it coming out of my mouth I'm still trying to get used to it um but that's a really nice way of putting it actually that's just rather than putting yourself into one part of the community it's just a broader yeah I like that so um the second question when did you come out it's always a weird one, isn't it? I think I think the question is always when did you come out for the first time? Because absolutely, people, <laughs> it's not a one-time thing. It's something that you have to do or you know end up doing repeatedly throughout your life. Um, but my first sort of big first coming out, I was eighteen. So, which I suppose is still relatively young, but I knew I was queer when I was seven years old. And it took another 11 years for those words to come out of my mouth and for me to tell anyone. And part of that was I was still living at home. I was still at school, college. Those, everyone around me were people I'd known pretty much since I was born or I was a toddler. And the thought of if any of those people had reacted negatively and I still had to see them every day and I, I just didn't do it. So when I was 18... I moved to university and I pretty much decided maybe three, four years in advance that that was when I was coming out and that everyone, when I moved to a new city to university, was going to meet me as a queer woman. And then if they had an issue with it, I'd just met them so I wouldn't be bothered. So I kind of turned up to Sheffield on day one of like, ta-da, I'm here, I'm queer, this is me, and sort of like was that quite probably in your face about it because I was just sort of like you know if you have an issue I want you to back away now and then you know me not form any form of relationship or friendship with you for that then to be a problem so that was my that was my first sort of coming out but like like I said it's something that we do all the time in my it shocks me sometimes that I assume that I live in this sort of little queer bubble because I I work full time in the LGBT sector. I've 
campaigned for so many years. Most of my friends are um, LGBT queer. And I, I literally get, I get to the point sometimes in life where I almost forget straight people exist. And then I'll just be in a shop or at the hairdressers or chatting to someone at the bus stop or something. And someone will be like, oh, what's your boyfriend or husband doing? I'm like, what? And it just completely throws me to go, like, why would, why would you even think that? <laughs> Absolutely. I think, um, I know, but actually even saying that as, as a gay man, I, I think I'm, st- I'm sometimes a bit heteronormative in my thinking because it's kind of drilled into you that I, or, I don't work, I work in equality and diversity, but I'm not surrounded by LGBT plus people all the time. And so I think I sometimes make presumptions that everyone is heterosexual, which is awful to say as an LGBT plus person, but that's, yeah. I mean, and I'll go on to the last question because you kind of alluded to it there. Um, so when did you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I pretty much always, I, I mean, I think it was, I was aware of it at, around about seven I'd say sort of going into junior school age um and I think it was more for me a realization that other people weren't clear you know so there was just sort of like it was like well this has always been a part of me and at that at that age it wasn't a sexual thing but you knew that you know that you had those sort of close friendships with girls that you know, when we were watching Jason and Carly or whatever it was at that age, I'm sort of giving my age away now, but, you know, I assumed that all of the other girls were having the same thoughts about Carly that I was. And it was around that sort of primary school, junior school age of realising, oh, well, maybe they're not having those same thoughts. Like the other girls, one of our boyfriends, and I'd like to have a girlfriend, and those sort of realization so it was I think at that age it was more a feel a realization of other people I already knew myself but it was going oh hang on what I know about myself I'm now making that comparison between me and other people and seeing that I'm different and that other people aren't thinking that way or seeing those same things so I think that was you know and I didn't necessarily use that language at that time and like say at that age it wouldn't have been a sexual thing but it was that um, yeah, probably around the seven years old that I was very aware that I was different to the other girls in my class. And when when you started to realise, I mean, when did you kind of see yourself represented, I guess, in a way? Because that's quite a young age to to start to realise that you're different, but you kind of can't quite put a label on it yet, whether that's necessarily on, necessary or not. But when did you kind of see yourself or see, oh, this is what it is? <laughs> I think the sad thing is that for a long time, I didn't at all. I mean, I went to school when it was still Section 28. It wasn't something that was spoken about to see LGBT people in general. Um, I still remember the only mention in sort of mainstream media of LGBT people was around the AIDS crisis. And to this day, uh, I don't know if you remember the outfit with with the um, tombstone where they were like, chiseling aids into this tombstone and like it being death and that was and it was like either you didn't exist or you were going to get aids and you were going to die and that was and that was only men so like the women didn't exist and you know so there was very little representation I think for me I always looked to sort of strong female role role models who you know I didn't necessarily know their sexuality. I didn't necessarily need to know their sexuality, but for women who were sort of 
very confident and outspoken. So I looked at a lot of, I listened to a lot of female fronted bands. I was really into sort of hole and garbage and people like that. And so I was like into sort of shouty women with attitude. And that appealed to me in terms of, so they were the people who I looked up to in the absence of, and some of those will have been LGBT people. Um, but yeah, that there was something about that defiance against sort of gender roles, you know, of seeing women who were in male-dominated arenas and absolutely bossed it. And that, you know, they were the people who I'd sort of look up to as role models. Um, but yeah, seeing out gay women, they, you know, there were a few, but, you know, and they were generally older, um, you know, so as a, you know, as a 15, year, 14, 15 year old, you know, I wasn't particularly looking up to somebody top speak because, you know, as brilliant as she is, she's the same generation as my mum, you know, so, and as a teenager, no one who's your mum's generation is in any way cool. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, and, it, and I, it's it, it's got a lot much better now. Um, but I still don't think that we're there. I said, you know, we we still need more and broader representation. You know, I'm I'm a white British woman, and I didn't see anyone who looked like me. If I was a black trans kid, I definitely wouldn't have been seeing anyone like me. You know, so that's a you know, if I wasn't seeing representation, think of you know. Other members of the community who are far more marginalised definitely weren't seeing that. And thinking back to um, when the AIDS advert was out and when Section 28 was in place, I mean, what were what were conversations like at home? Were there any conversations around, you know, I, I'm just thinking particularly, I, I think back a lot with my family. Um, so I grew up I'm a few years younger than you, but not not many. So I grew up towards the tail end of Section 28, but it was still very much there when I was, whilst I was at school. But I often think about com- my family seemed to have learned to accept very slowly, in some people's cases, LGBT issues in how things were represented in television, particularly soap operas. So when Emma Dale had a gay kiss, oh, that was... Uh, and I can remember sitting there and hearing quite homophobic conversations in my family around it. So how was that when those real visceral adverts, particularly related to AIDS, as it was called, um, what were conversations like around your family? Did that push you back in the closet a little bit? Did that, how was that? Yeah, I mean, it, it generally, it wasn't something that was spoken about a lot at all. Um, I've got to say there was definitely a difference between my parents in terms of, my father worked at the university, had a much broader sort of friendship group. So, you know, um, work colleagues and students and was pretty, you know, pretty open-minded in, in most respects, it, I think, being in that context. Um, my mum grew up in sort of quite sheltered, so was quite um, ignorant in the, nice, in the nicest way. You know, she would never be intentionally horrible to someone or mean to cause offence but she's very much someone who you know even to this day now I I pick her up on sort of quite a bit of language and say you know you really can't say that and she doesn't mean anything by it so there was quite there'd be quite a lot of those sort of difficult conversations coming out of saying things that just you know 
weren't really appropriate even in the you know even in the eighties. Um, and but you were surrounded by that, so I don't think I necessarily felt oh this is an awful home to live in and the but it was just the you know it just wasn't something that you spoke about at all. Um, and I think the one of the funniest ones for me is um, because I actually I. I didn't come out directly to my parents. I came out accidentally. Um, so once I'd moved to university, and there's a brilliant conversation that I only know of because it was relayed to me by my kid sister who still lived at home at the time. Um, but I'd moved to university. I'd come out to everyone pretty much with the exception of my parents. And I thought maybe need to like, wait till I go back home at Christmas or something. Um, so I hadn't come out to my parents yet. Um, but I was LGB officer at, ha- at Hallam Uni. So whenever I sent an email, that was my signature on the bottom of my emails, head past LGB officer. Um, and when I emailed home do- doing my, oh, this is what I've been doing at uni and whatever my little sort of parent-friendly update was, I'd just delete my signature off. And one time I forgot. And my sister phoned me up straight away to absolutely roaring with laughter because um, they got the email through. My dad sat there at the computer. My mum's hovering over his shoulder because she can't get too close to the technology. And re- reading the email at the bottom, Heather Pass is LGB officer. And my mum's like, what? what's LGB, st- LGB stand for? What, what's that mean? And my dad's like, lesbian, gay, bisexual. That doesn't mean our Heather. She, she's not, is she? And my dad's like, well, yeah, isn't it bloody obvious? So I hadn't come out to him, but he knew. And, and she, um, so my mum's like, well, no, it's not obvious, why? And at the age of sort of 17, 18, I had a skinhead, Doc Martens, the dungarees, you know, I was, you know, obviously someone's presentation does not in any way indicate their sexuality, but I, at 17, I couldn't have been more of a walking sort of stereotypical lesbian because I, I think that was part of my sort of, ta I'm here, um, that I thought I had to adopt the dress code um, so my dad's like, surely it's obvious. And I was like, no, no. And like, well, what about the posters in her wall when, like, in her bedroom when she comes in? Because she had all these, like, sort of Courtney Love and Shirley Manson and people up. And my mum was like, yeah, I thought she just liked the music. And my dad turned around and said she liked Metallica, but there were no pictures of them in their undercrackers, were there? <laughs> and I was just like, I wish I could have actually been a fly on the wall for that conversation. But my sister picked the phone up straight away just... Crying with laughter to relay the conversation to me. So, that is excellent. There's you mentioned then as well about um, and obviously how people present is not really necessarily linked to their identity. But you mentioned then about kind of in a way you kind of when you came out you kind of attacked it, I guess, <laughs> and you went all in. And um, did you feel like you had to? And it might go back to that lack of role models because there there wasn't a diversity in the role models that there were, if there were any. Did you feel you had to perform or be in a certain way when you first come out and you're trying to find who you are? And Yeah, I think it was that sort of thing that I wanted, you know, I'd waited so long to come out in my mind that I wanted everyone to know that, like, as soon as they, you know, looked at me from about two miles away, I, I, I just needed to sort of, like, scream queer at them, you know. And that was, you know, like I say, there wasn't any diversity representation. So for me, 17, 18 years old, that was what a lesbian looked like. You know, that was what a queer woman looked like. And so, yeah, I mean, I've got 
really don't suit a skinhead, but number two all over, off it came, you know, it was a, yeah, and, and to be fair, I've had several other fashion disasters over the years, but, but you know, that was very much the sort of school of thought at that point was like, you know, adopting the uniform, so to speak, and then, you know, it's taken time from them to actually go, well, this is who I am and this is how I'm comfortable and this is how, yeah. Still wear the docks and dungarees from time to time, but I don't feel the need that I have to perform or present it in, in a certain way to meet someone's expectations. You know, I'm sat here staying floral dress because it's, you know, it's summer. <laughs> and that's how I, you know, it's summer. I've put a summer dress on and I feel quite comfortable in that. I don't feel the need. Maybe with the temperatures today, the shaving of the head doesn't fit sound like a bad idea, um, <laughs> ju- just for practical purposes. <laughs> I think that's true. I mean, there is, and I, I, when I came out, I sort of did the whole, in a similar way of like, I'm queer, I'm here, and, you know, everything was, and I, I, I was being very performative, I think, and I am, you know, I am camp, and I'm, I'm fine with that, Um but I think it was very performative initially when I first came out because it became this, oh, I must, I must behave like this because, and my, my main point, it was around the time that Will and Grace had just started and I basically modeled myself on Jack and that wasn't really me, but it's taken years to find a way of being comfortable. And um, I guess, you know, most teenagers go through that anyway, but it, yeah, it was um, interesting times. What I, what I did want to ask was, is there, so thinking about to say it and actually and where you work. So is there, what does say it provide that now that you wish was in place during your teenage years? I know that's quite broad, but is there a couple of particular services, I guess, that you wish? Yeah, I mean, well, I did actually, um, so I attended what was at the time the LGB Youth Initiative, um, which was the 18 to 25 group at the time. So when I came to Sheffield, um, I did eventually discover the LGB Youth Group and I was still young enough to be in the oldest group. Um, and at the time, that was a separate organisation, but that's now under us and part of what we offer. Um, so I did manage to speak in the back end, but I would have... I would have loved for there to have been an LGBT youth group when I was younger. Um, sadly, what I discovered many years later that there was, but because I'm of an age bracket where there wasn't the internet, I never found out about it. So there actually was a youth group in Liverpool when I was growing up and I just didn't know it was there. So you had to, someone had to know, someone had to tell you about it. You had to pick up a flyer from the right place and I just, I just never did. So it was something that I subsequently found out in my 20s doing some LGBT history research. Uh, oh, damn, there was a group I could have like been sneaking off to. Um, so I think that's a lot better. Now, just having a space where there's some people who are like you or at least not going to question that, you know, that you being LGBT or question that is in some way unusual or different and just feel a, a space where you can feel safe and comfortable I mean, I went to a secondary school um I actually went to an all-girls school and there were 1400 young people in that school and to my, to my knowledge throughout the seven years that I was there because I did the sixth form as well there was one girl in the year below me who had mentioned that she was bi-curious and the entire school knew about it now clearly 
lots of LGBT students in that school who have subsequently come out. But at that time, that's the difference between going to school in that area, that it just wasn't something, you know, I mentioned to people now that I went to an all-girls school and they're like, oh, you must have a way all the time. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I was like, no. But looking back now, I've looked up on my old school's um, website because actually um, it was one of the possible schools that my niece might have ended up going to. So I was having a little look as to what it looks like now, sort of a few decades later. And they've got an LGBT group and they celebrate Pride and amongst the sort of photos on their social media pages, there's clear pictures of couples holding hands and stuff. Yeah, and it's a complete world of difference. So I think just just the provision to have that space and for some young people where school, while it's much better, school or college may still not be that safe space for them where they're comfortable being out and that, you know, they might not want the whole school to know, especially if it's something that they're still figuring out themselves. So having a space where they can come and be comfortable to do that figuring out, I think is really, really important. Um, I think the other thing that we do that's really, really important, um, obviously we run the youth groups, but we also have, um, that you may have seen on the website, um, our Noah Lomax Fund. Um, and Noah was a young gay man who at 15 took his own life. And he was known to be struggling with his mental health. He was on the waiting list for CAMS, the Youth Mental Health Service. Um, so it was something that people were aware of. Um, and he was awaiting um, therapy and he never got to the front of that list. So obviously his parents, his family didn't want any other young person to ever get, be in that situation. And so they set up the Noah Lomax Fund for us. So that um, pays for private counselling at the point of need. So if we have a young person now, they may still go onto the waiting list for CAMS, um, but they can be, we can say, oh, well, actually, you can see one of our counsellors on Tuesday. You know, so actually there's someone you can speak to pretty much straight away. We can usually get you in to see someone within the week. And the difference that that has made to our young people and having that that provision, I think, is really, really important. Um, the rate of, you know, mental health difficulties amongst LGBT people across the board, actually, but specifically, um, obviously, our focus is on LGBT young people. Um, the mental health absolute crisis, to be honest, of, you know, the level of need and to be able to offer that um, support, I think, is just really, really valuable. So, I was going to ask, actually, and how services have adapted so working in in your field for 20 years how services have adapted in that time and you kind of answered it and I think there's something about I think services now are probably more aware and they're definitely we are everyone's talking about mental health a lot more than they ever have but ultimately there's not necessarily been an increase in availability of mental health support so people I guess are aware of the issues but there's still not an increase in actually availability of appointments and how how have attitudes changed in have you that you've seen in services towards LGBT plus young people? I think there's it's something now that so many organisations are aware of, um, but they don't. I think there's a lot of nervousness still um, from a, on a professional side of nervousness around specifically a lot around language, but whether they're knowledgeable enough 
you know, that it's seen, you know, we're obviously a specialist LGBT service, but for other youth services or genetic sort of voluntary sector charitable services that are dealing with all people, LGBT is seen as a specialism and quite often it's seen, it's viewed as a specialism and viewed as something that professionals don't always feel confident in. And so instead of thinking, well, I'll just support this person in the same way that I would support anyone else, it's like, oh, well, hang on, I might use an incorrect term, I might cause offence, I might be faced with something that I don't know about, and there's a there's a lack. Um, so that's something we come across quite a bit, that there's a sort of lack of professional confidence from people who have, you know, they are trained professionals and absolutely know what they're doing and can support someone, but it, it's reassuring them that that's the case. And in some settings, actually, there is a need to have that specialist knowledge. If you are running a service that includes a sexual health provision, then you absolutely need to have the appropriate knowledge to provide a sexual health service to all people and includes an LGBT people within that. Um, we do, um, at the moment, we have a project called Call It Out, um, which is an LGBT domestic abuse project. Um, and that is, it's a little bit different to the other work that we do because it's not a delivery project. That is working with other service providers to improve the provision for LGBT people. So we work with the mainstream domestic and sexual abuse providers and housing providers who sort of look after the refuges and emergency accommodation um, to look at how they can better improve their service and be more accessible to LGBT people. Um, so we run training, we've got a kite mark scheme, we do general sorts of consulting work, we've got a network that we've set up of um, the South Yorkshire LGBT Domestic Abuse Network, because quite often there'll be one person within an organisation that they are the person that has the responsibility for LGBT, and they, they may be working in a bigger organisation but feel quite isolated. So we've set up a network for all those people who have that LGBT responsibility so that they can all come together and sort of share information um, and resources and go, well, you know, this is an issue that we're facing within our organisation. Have you come across that? How are you dealing with it? Um, so that's a really valuable piece of work as well because um, the stats around LGBT domestic abuse are quite frightening and the numbers of people who are actually accessing support we're not so. We're, so we know that LGBT people are experiencing higher rates of domestic abuse, but as a proportion, they're less likely to be walking through a door of a support service. So they're they're dealing with that on their own, um, and obviously that's something that we want to address. So that's what that project's um, working to do. Um, but it definitely gives you an insight into some, you know, how LGBT is viewed in other sectors and other areas and other organisations. Um, We've got so much to consider, you know, we, we're, yeah, and we try to do that as well, that we're an LGBT organisation, but we try to take an intersectional approach of going that actually being LGBT is one part of your identity. Uh, but actually, what if you are LGBT and disabled or LGBT and black or LGBT and anything else? Um, how does that interact and how does that change your experiences and how does that you know, impact what support you may need. So we did, um, over the past year or so, we've also ran a project called See the Spectrums that was looking specifically at the intersection between young people with special educational needs and disabilities. 
um, and we looked at how we can set up our service to be more accessible. We have um, so some of the stuff we did that we trialed within our own service, and so we set up a steering group with um, young people with additional needs, and sort of and got them to be what would make this space more comfortable for you. And we and we and we've done that within our own service, and we've run a national conference of sharing the learning from that project and going you know this is what we've learned by doing it these are things that we've been able to put in place that you can put in place in your services to share that knowledge so we have uh, um when all the groups that we run we have a quiet room so we have young people who have maybe sensory um needs or get overwhelmed easily so we always make sure there's a quiet space um we have some sort of sensory and fidget toys knocking about some headphones different things to make people more comfortable um and then we've looked at um, other disabilities as well. So we've got a number of young people who are hard of hearing um, and all of our youth workers have done BSL training so that at least we can um, obviously if some, um, for someone who's completely deaf, we will get translators in, but it means that our youth workers all know, at least know basic BSL um, and are a lot more just consciously aware of young people who may need to rely more on lip reading, um, of things that we need to put in place, especially at the moment, everyone's wearing masks, so being, you know, actually how does that impact? So, um, yeah, just having those considerations. There's a lot there as well. I mean, I might have said in a previous episode before, but for a long time growing up, because, you know, LGBT people... I mean, there's very little sex and relationships education now. There was nothing <laughs> when uh, growing up. And for a long time, I think till I was about 20, 21, I thought gay men just got HIV. No one ever explained to me how it actually happened. So I didn't know that I could be safe. And I didn't, I just thought it somehow magically happened to all gay men. But that was the, that's how poor sex and relationships education was. So, to have stuff like that in place, it might not be in schools, which is a whole other battle. Well, well that is, um, so that's actually something else that we've um, been working on um, over the past couple of years. So the new SRE curriculum actually did kick in in September last year. So prior to September, so from when Section 28 ended in 2003, four, should know that off the top of my head, around that time, um, from that point, schools were allowed to teach about LGBT, but they didn't have to, so they could equally choose not to, which means that it's been a real sort of postcode lottery and sketchy provision because, you know, and some schools are brilliant and would really like to, but they've just, they're pulled all over the place and there's loads of things that they would like to do, but they just haven't been able to resource or have the time for. So it's not saying that necessarily these schools are terrible. Um, but some, but then in some areas we've had schools that have been brilliant for years and have had LGBT groups within the schools that they've been running pride events that they've always included gender sexuality stuff within their SRE curriculums. They've been teaching about sort of consent and looking at relationships in a much more sort of holistic way. Um, but it just means that it's really been quite a broad range of what your experience could be in terms of school so as of september um the new curriculums come in and it's not just uh lgbt it's um it includes all sorts of stuff around it's been 
updated around sort of drugs and alcohol, around a lot of more um, content around race and around different um, topics, but obviously LGBT within that. Um, and so we've been working as part of the network in Sheffield that have been looking at the rollout of the curriculum and creating content for that within within South Yorkshire. Um, so that is something that's going to change sort of going forward from around now that like that schools are starting to do this um, if they weren't before and it being and it being more consistent that you're not going to have a different level of LGBT education because you go to the school down the street from your mates who get something completely different. Um, so there'll be a level of sort of base knowledge that everyone will have. Um, so that should start hopefully to make make a difference as that starts to filter through and obviously that's not going to change things overnight you know we've got people who have gone through you know decades where there hasn't been any education um but as we go through that you know in 10 years time in 20 years time people that have always known that you know there are people who some people like boys some people like girls some people identify one way or another that you know there's no right or wrong way to to be or to love and that's all okay as that sort of filters through i think it will make the country the world a very different place and you know because it, it's it's difficult at the moment i think for all of the years of equality work that i've done and campaigning for most of them it sort of felt like yeah we're getting better okay right we've got equal age of consent now we've got rid of section 28 we've got same-sex marriage we've got this talk going forward and then the past few years have been oh they're trying to you know they're keeping up about the gender recognition act there's you know all these sort of anti-lgbt groups popping up you know you've got trump in you know a position of power and boris johnson another who you know we've got world leaders who are on record as making very sort of homophobic biphobic transphobic um, statements and suddenly those years of progress I think the past couple of years have felt like how quickly that can be stripped away and that it can feel like we're going backwards again so I think that education being embedded is really really important and that feels like something that's positive and that will have a longer term impact. Thank you and I think and that takes me quite well to my last question of considering the, the huge change that there's been um since you were in school under section 28 what would you want to go back and say to that seven-year-old heather who realized that oh i, I quite like kylie and not jason <laughs> what would you want to go back and say to her um I think I just want to reassure her, like I was terrified of coming out for 11 years and then when I did, no one was really bothered. They were like, yeah, that's cool. Like they either already could guess or weren't really bothered or were like, you know, positive about it. Um, so all of those sort of fears that I had that I'd be disowned, you know, no one would ever speak to me again, you know, weren't true and I held that with me for a lot of years and so I, it'd be really nice to be able to go back and just go just tell everyone they'll be fine <laughs> you know and I know that um, 
isn't everyone's experience universally. Um, so, you know, there's no right or wrong time to come out. It's not something that anyone ever has to do. I think sometimes it can be difficult that we go, um, we do, we have pride and we have National Coming Out Day and it's like we need to, everyone should be out and bold and proud of who they are. And yeah, that's brilliant. But actually um, remembering that it's still not always safe for everyone to do that. So actually, you know, that's what I would like to tell myself individually because I know how that turned out and I know that it had a good ending. Um, but it's not necessarily what I would be saying to you know, everyone just come out now and damn the consequences because, you know, the reality very much is that a lot of LGBT people that as much as we've moved on, that for some people that's still not a safe option for them um, and for us to be aware of that. And, you know, for those of us, I'm in a very lucky position that I am safe and comfortable and happy to be out there. I do this work and then I have this platform and that I can sort of speak out and fly my flags and stuff. Um, and the ability to do that when other people can't sort of makes it feel more important that I do do that. Um, because there'll be people going, well, I wish I could, but there may be consequences. So um, for those of us where there aren't and we're able and willing to do that, I think it's a good thing. Thank you to Heather for joining me on When Did You Know? Hope you enjoyed the episode and please remember to keep sharing this podcast with everyone you know. Subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use and please do leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to get this podcast out there. And I'm sorry some of the episodes have been a little bit sporadic recently. My full-time job has taken over a little bit over the summer, but we should be back to weekly episodes from now on until the end of this season. And a thank you to Richard Abrahams for my theme music. Don't forget to follow me at WDYKPod on Instagram and Twitter, or email me at WDYKPod at gmail.com with questions, comments, or to volunteer yourself for an interview. Until next time. <laughs>